Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Happy New Year to everyone who's listening. Um, this is a discussion of the January Phantoms, uh, which is a summary of the selected articles uh, from the, the journal selected by uh, Professor Ben Stenson, who is with me uh, today. If you'd like to say hello, Ben. Hi, Jonathan. And um, if we get launched in, there's a lot of meat in, in, in this phantoms and a lot of meat to get into, sorry for our, our vegan listeners, um, to get into in this uh, edition of, of the journal uh, to some very dense um, and interesting review articles and some randomised control trials. But starting off is uh, Noah Fleiss and colleagues who have done a nice comparison in a review article of the management of early onset sepsis in neonates. It's something that we've discussed on the on the podcast before, comparing UK and USA guidelines seems like a sensible thing to do. Uh, and you had some interesting thoughts on that. Yes. Early onset neonatal sepsis is one of the things that stresses clinicians the most because the consequences are so dire. If it's missed and um, yet the incidence of it affecting fewer than one in a thousand term babies means that well, approaches which are very keen to investigate and treat to avoid risk of missing it necessarily interfere with the transition and normal family life of a very large number of, of families and, and babies. And in the absence of a really strong evidence base, you've got to do something. And inevitably, uh, around the world, different uh, approaches have arisen um, with quite wide variation in the exposure of babies to antibiotics and hospitalizations, but still some way to go in terms of evaluation of large populations to work out what the best approach is. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and it seems that certainly from my reading of the review and my understanding of the guidelines that, you know, clinical examination of the patient is, you know, still a key um, tenant of that of those of those guidelines and it's extremely important no matter what other you know risk factors or or scores that you use you know as an old mentor of mine um once said as a last resort examine the patient yeah the um increasing number of studies still largely with relatively small populations showing that that kind of selective approach may be comparable with much lower incidence of antibiotic exposure is really encouraging. It's really important to remember that although the guidelines achieve the status almost of a complete expectation on part of the clinical community, they're, they're simply a line in the sand draw in a very uncertain area, which should remain mobile. Yes, and one of the things that when I, I read the review that I was drawn to was the certainly the very strong suggestion, and that's one I have to say I agree with, is the guidelines are often drawn and written up to cover a broad spectrum of you know healthcare delivery and actually targeting and implementing within your population, knowing what infective rates exist and how you deliver your healthcare is actually quite important. So not, the guidelines are not only important, but how they're implemented in the local context. Yes, I agree. Whenever you audit how well guidelines are um, implemented, you tend not to find the results you were hoping for. 
indeed um well the other review that um, you talk about in, in the phantoms is uh, from Anurin young and his colleagues well colleagues of uh, of his and of ours um from archives um who have written a again it's another hot topic in, and has remained a hot topic in neonatology for some time and optimizing growth in preterm infants and they make a very important argument about optimizing that uh growth and long-term or longer term neurodevelopmental outcomes? Yeah, it's a fiendishly complicated topic, isn't it? Again, born out of the need to nourish preterm infants in an evidence vacuum and um, a gradually increasing sophistication of the available approaches. But ultimately, it remains such a dilemma because of the difficulty of doing large trials to work all of these things out. Although, like the area of infection, it's great to see the momentum gathering to do these kinds of studies now. We've got quite a few trials going on in the UK of different approaches to parental nutrition, and hopefully some of these dilemmas will be more clearly uh, resolved in the next few years. Yeah, and um, when I was reading the the, the review, um, I, I was trying to reconcile it with I mean, there's some recent evidence looking at um, early amino acid administration and neurodevelopmental outcome in, in preterms that was published in the New England Journal Bloomfield et al. Uh, last month, I believe. And I certainly know that we've talked about uh, Chris Gale and his group and, you know, late preterm um, TPN. And, and I wonder whether this review article will have a slightly different flavour in 18 months or two years time, whenever some of those um, pieces of evidence can be, you know, integrated into practice, and people can reflect on on how they might impact um, some of those longer term outcomes and how uh, older babies perhaps are, are getting their nutrition and what their rate of growth or catch up should be. Yep. And evidence from older children in PICU uh, that going in with parental nutrition early in the clinical course, whilst the degree of sickness is high, might actually worsen outcomes rather than improve them. So we've really got to remain open-minded to all of these questions. Uh, Absolutely. More more is not always better. Um, So moving on from from the reviews to, to the first of the randomized control trials, at least uh, an aspect of the randomized control trial. And this is from uh, Halvmeyer um, and her colleagues in Amsterdam, in Holland. Um, and this is a paper on the short-term pulmonary and systemic effects of hydrocortisone between day seven and day 10 in ventilated very preterm infants. This is a stop BPD study. And um, I mean, the findings are are interesting when you put it in context with other recent hydrocortisone studies. But I wonder, is there is there there's still more discussion around the the administration of steroids in preterm babies? Well, very much so. One of the reasons why I was interested in this is that although the trial stop BPD didn't show a statistically significant difference in its primary outcome. In the short term, it showed quite a substantial difference between groups in how long it took the children to get off the ventilator and mm. how many of them got reintubated. And in the end, that's why clinicians are giving steroids to preterm babies. The epidemiological data shows that 
after a, a dip in the popularity of postnatal steroids, largely uh, dexamethasone, which followed the recognition that in some randomized controlled trials, long-term follow-up showed an increased risk of disability in children exposed to steroids. They became less popular, but they've been creeping back quite substantially. And now very substantial numbers of infants are exposed to dexamethasone, um, even though it's never really been shown prospectively to improve long-term outcomes. So it's still of interest if less potent steroids and um, lower doses of those steroids might achieve the same short-term benefits um, with a likelihood of a lower risk of long-term harms. So we've still got quite a bit of work to do. Yeah, and, and to put this one in um, in context for perhaps people who are listening to, to who want to understand some of the background, this is a, um, a subset of the this Stop BPD study that was published in um, in JAMA in 2017, which is a double-blinded uh, randomized controlled trial um, in the Netherlands and Holland, and babies less than 30 weeks, you got just over a three-week course of um, hydrocortisone um, between day seven and day 14, and perhaps contrast with the Premilox study, which was a prophylactic hydrocortisone study that was published in The Lancet in 2016. We'll put these links in the in the notes on the podcast so people can do some, some background reading. But looking at those studies, I, I agree with you that we use dexamethasone. Most people still use dexamethasone, certainly in in, in the UK and I know in Australia and, and and other places to try and get babies off ventilators. Um, certainly, if in my clinical practice, if I'm wanting to to use a steroid, I'm thinking about the short term getting the baby off the ventilator in the hope that that will improve um, the long term outcome by reducing the number of ventilator days. Um, and certainly. Um, in, a, in a paper from archives a few years ago, I think, by Henry Halliday um, and Lex Doyle, there was a, um, a very interesting discussion on the risk stratification of, of, of babies and getting dexamethasone and neurodevelopmental outcome, where if your risk of poor developmental outcome was, was high, then giving the, the steroid at the, you know, at the to get off the ventilator was actually beneficial and having all of these babies in the one group may not be the right way to look at, at their, their longer term outcomes. So yeah, I think this is this gives me some reassurance that that hydrocortisone in the way that a clinician and an average, very average clinician at times and wants to use it is this is quite reassuring. Yeah, well this huge variation in practice from unit to unit the proportion of infants who get exposed to steroids. So that alone tells you how we need to study it more. Absolutely. The, the next, um, this is an observational study, but it is something we discussed about on the on the ADC podcast, and it's um, looking at automated oxygen controllers and some interesting points raised in your commentary on, on that. They're not all the same, I think, is what I, I, I got from uh, got, got from this. And the algorithms do differ quite dramatically. Um, your thoughts? Well, uh, first of all, I should declare that this is a subject that I'm particularly interested in. I was one of the investigators of the Boost 2 UK trial of different oxygen saturation targets for preterm babies, which form part of the near-prom collaboration. And as 
you probably recall that international collaborative effort enrolled several thousand babies in different trials. And those trials showed that infants who were randomized to slightly higher targets for their oxygen saturation, when compared with lower targets, the higher target babies had a slightly lower mortality and a slightly lower risk of necrotizing enterocolitis or severe necrotizing enterocolitis, but they had a higher risk of ROP. And those trials were dependent on manual oxygen titration by nursing staff in response to the saturation monitors. And of course, now there is automated servo control available for a wide range of respiratory support devices. And it's getting implemented in clinical care. The the servo control devices maintain babies in a narrower range with less time above target and less time below target and might be predicted, therefore, to influence clinical outcome because the Neopron trials showed that small differences in saturation distribution can be associated with big changes in outcome. The uh, So it's really crucial that we do trials comparing servo to manual control, but there's also a question of whether or not different servo control systems might achieve materially different outcomes because they themselves result in different saturation distributions, even though they all largely use the same underlying oxygen saturation monitoring technology. So in this study, there are two modest-sized populations of babies compared in a before-after methodology where in the earlier period, one automated control system was in use, and in the second period, another was. And um, doing their best to control for differences between groups, it appears that one controller was associated with a very much lower risk of retinopathy and prematurity requiring treatment. The difference was exceedingly large in terms of tenfold difference, and um, that in itself should give rise to some concern about residual confounding. And obviously, findings like this need to be studied prospectively with randomization, but um, not statistically significant. The infants whose controller enabled them to achieve a lower risk of ROP needing treatment had a slightly higher risk of mortality, which mirrors the previous findings of Neoprom. And it's a very small risk, so it would need large studies to show it. But through the history of neonatology, ROP treatment of mortality have gone in different directions with changes in approaches to oxygen. So I think we still want to be cautious about the best way forward. Yeah, you, you've you've put it very eloquently, and I think there's a this story is a longer to run. Do we have a have sort of a safety net for this as as well as um, targeting the the improvement in outcomes? So the, the another randomised control trial is from um, New Zealand, um, the Chips study, a neonatology randomised trial isn't the neonatology randomized trial that has a, an interesting acronym. Um, so this was a, a non-feriority uh, trial, and that will obviously pick the interest of various people who are interested in those kind of things, looking at um, CPAP and humidified high-flow uh, oxygen and weaning from CPAP. It seemed like a fairly 
well conducted study um, and had a, a very detailed sort of pathway of where, where babies can go. And in the end, there didn't seem to be much in it. No, I think that's very interesting. And it may reflect the fact that infants in both groups had strict weaning protocols that meant that the rate at which they were taken off the ventilator wasn't arbitrary or left to the variation in views of clinicians day by day. And um, I mean, it's something certainly that I've observed in practice in my own unit, that since high flow nasal cannula therapy became more popular as a form of non-invasive support that is very, very well tolerated by babies and families, they just seem to stay on it longer than they used to stay on CPAP because people feel less compelled to wean it and remove it. So um, it, it's it's interesting to me to show me that that is not the case when stroke protocols are employed. Yeah, and that's I guess that's the the key and interesting point. And I I I'm sure that. Uh, I'm just very mindful that the humidified high flow uh, proponents are very socially media active. So I, I don't want a flurry of comments when I carefully choose my words when I say them. But I, I do get the impression that babies on um, high flow do stay on it for longer. And I do wonder, are there any hidden consequences of those that we have yet to report widely um, and I'm sure if people know who they are uh, want to comment on that I'd be um, very willing to, to, to promote that discussion. Yeah yes. and the, um, you know, I come at it from a different angle which is are they really different at all uh, because we've had other discussions in this journal and on phantoms about the fact that both of these forms of respiratory support deliver CPAP and both of these forms yep. of uh, respiratory support deliver dead space washout. And once you get rid of clinician bias as much as you can, it's really, really hard to perceive there to be important differences between them. So I probably have to join some further discussion about that too. Yeah, I, I think from what I, yeah. It's all it's all the same, probably, isn't it? Anyway, I'll move on um, to the the Helix trial and a very interesting viewpoint for from Joanna Davidson and, and colleagues. One of which is is uh, Professor Alistair Gunn from Auckland, who's been a, a guest in this podcast a, a few years ago. And just for context for people who are listening, the Helix study was a a study of uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy in uh, India, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. Infants greater than thirty six weeks who were cooled for 72 hours at 33 and a half degrees. And the findings of that study showed that there was an increase in mortality. The recommendations of the study were that cooling shouldn't be offered in low and middle income countries, even in tertiary settings. Uh, and uh, Dr. Davidson and colleagues have some views on perhaps how to unpick some of that information. And I've made some suggestions about uh, a way forward. Yes, and they quite rightly question the biological likelihood that cooling wouldn't be effective in one country rather than another if you um, truly equalise the circumstances with which it's being offered in terms of the nature of the patient characteristics. And they're concerned that babies whose um, 
whose insult arose over a longer time period might be those overrepresented in these studies and least likely to benefit. Yes, um, and I think they have made some good next step study suggestions. And, and perhaps, as has been the theme in some of the HIE discussions recently in the journal, better targeting and selection of patients may actually benefit the delivery of, of that type of care, which I, I guess is the same for, for all types of therapy. Yeah, well, place yourself in the shoes of a family with a baby suffering from that condition in a unit with the resource to deliver the treatment, you're going to want access to that treatment and or at least development of capability of accessing it in a way that would be beneficial to progress rather than a halt in its availability. Absolutely. And I guess we will we will see the, the next steps hopefully coming soon in that discussion. Well, Ben, thank you very much for a wonderful discussion. Uh, we hope everybody has enjoyed it. Um, and uh, if further interaction is, is warranted, Stenson Ben on Twitter, isn't it, Ben? Yeah. Stenson Ben, uh, Jonathan underscore Davis3 and ADC underscore fn uh, at uh, the new wild west that twitter has become and we hope to have some considered and respectful discussions thereon if mr musk will allow so thank you everyone for your for your input and uh, we look forward to next time